For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Justin Dyke. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. We've come to talk about your horror film, Anything for Jackson, which is readily available to Shudder subscribers um, in the territories where Shudder's available. Um, as I understand it, that's, that's English-speaking territories, so anywhere else who might pick this podcast up, is, is, it, is it going to be available, or how is it available in places that don't have Shudder? I think they're still working on that. Right now it's on Shutter US, UK, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and in Canada, it's available on the Super Channel Fuse. Um, so we're still waiting on news for the rest of the distribution, hoping for a physical release sometime in the near future. Um, but uh, they keep that those cards close to their chest. So I'm uh, I'm waiting like everybody else. <laughs> Before we go into any details then, do you want to give uh, for, the, for the people that can access it readily and when they hear this podcast, give us a brief synopsis to what Anything for Jackson's all about, please. Sure. Anything for Jackson is about a, a couple, uh, Henry and Audrey Walsh, and they uh, tragically, before the movie begins, lost their grandson in a car accident. Um, so they, through a lot of research and a lot of trial and error, have discovered that maybe there's a chance they could get him back through some black arts. And they uh, decide to kidnap a pregnant woman in hopes of performing a reverse exorcism to put the soul of their grandson back into this unborn child so that when the baby is born, they can have their precious Jackson back. My name is Audrey, and this is my husband, Henry. We don't want to hurt you or your baby. We feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. Dr. Walsh, huh? morning. Here to clean your drive. No, no, everything's okay. Thank you so much for the book. Hail Satan. No one has more time than a grieving family. We can do this. He's coming back to us. Hey! 
treat. It's a kind of a horror film steeped in tragedy and then stumbling into some of the most stupidest decisions you could hope to make to rectify that tragedy. Very much so. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but but in saying that, though, there is there is something about it, which is, I mean, it's not quite to the extreme, but, um, but like, if, I don't know if you've seen the Australian film Relic at all, but there's like this, there, I just, I, I like this notion of sort of caring and or considerate horror, you know, as opposed to wham, bam, thank you, ma'am horror. Right. We wanted to, the, uh, Keith and myself, I refer to we, because he and I really had taken this from, from start to finish. Um, we worked for, to, together for a very long time. So our goal from the beginning is to, we, we like things that feel real, feel like this could be the people next door. Um, so yeah, right back to the beginning, if someone's going to do this, it's not because they were born evil, they're going to need some sort of motivation. So we had to find a reason what, what could push a human being to the extreme of, you know, doing this to somebody else. And there's a, you know, there's certainly a level of, of selfishness and privilege. Um, but it's also about, you know, what, what's, what's driven them to this point. So, you know, I'm sure everyone loves someone um so much they could say you know I, you know i would die for this person or for a child or a grandchild of course it's a pretty easy answer but what's beyond that what can you do beyond dying for that person um so that was uh where we wanted to push it for for this movie yeah because it's it's a very it's a very human trope never mind a, a, a narrative trope for for the old generation to be kind of more consumed with death if it's about a generation before them going before them. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the greatest tragedy is losing a child, of course. So that's, um, that's, that's the motivation for them. Looking for that then. So how, how did you, how did you and Keith then, and that's, um, that's, that's uh, Keith Cooper. How did you, what was the kernel of the idea then that got you into this idea of a, of a lost child and an elderly couple looking to uh, get the grandkid back? What was the kernel? I mean, you said you're looking for something, but what was the kernel that then became what is anything for Jackson? Yeah. So we were out trying to sell our, uh, our stack of horror movie ideas and we took a meeting um, and they said, you know, they had one that they liked, but they said, you know, it's great, but we have another movie in a similar genre. Uh, do you guys have anything in the supernatural world? And we said, of course we have something in the supernatural world. So we'll, uh, we'll get that together and send it to you. So we left the meeting, we hopped in the car and we said, all right, we better come up with something uh, supernatural right now. So we just, you know, started thinking of our favorite supernatural movies. What are the subgenres of, of ghost movies? Um, came across exorcism, of course, and just quite literally said, what is the unexpected? What's the opposite of an exorcism movie? Like, well, it's an opposite exorcism, a reverse exorcism, if you will. So we said, okay, what, why would somebody want to put a spirit into another body? And that was the kernel of the idea. Um, so the, I think we came to, you know, losing a child pretty quickly. Uh, the original concept was, you know, it's two parents would want to do this for a child. But again, we said, no, that's, that's the expected. What's the unexpected. So we went to grandparents and um, that was, yeah, that was sort of how it was born. Um, I think we came up with that opening scene uh, on the drive home. And then uh, rattled around a few more ideas, like this is the way the ghosts could be. This is where they come from. 
Um, and then uh, Keith went home and put together, I think he did a basic sort of beat sheet treatment thing, sent it along to me. Uh, we went back and forth a bunch and uh, he's a wildly prolific writer. So he had a really great first draft within a few weeks. Um, we were able to pitch it to the, the, the folks we were meeting with um, before the script was written. And then, uh, yeah, I guess about not even a year later, uh, we got it uh, picked up in Greenland. You're right. That the, the grandparents sort of lends it a gravitas and, and, and an element of novelty that that means we're not we're not used to this scenario, this idea of the the planning and the conniving. But 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 they don't they're not they're not presented as as a kind of antagonistic force at all. They're what they're doing in their in their film, as it were, is only f- a force of good. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, you know it's very easy to if you want an audience member to feel bad you just you know oh look this character is young and they have cancer of course you're going to feel bad for them but can you make them feel bad for the kidnappers who have chained a pregnant woman to their bed so that was just a it was an uphill climb that we wanted to tackle and if we can pull this off it's going to be very interesting so you find geniuses like Sheila McCarthy and Julian Richings um and people are going to empathize with them if if you don't sympathize you can at least empathize with uh, with these horrible people. <laughs> so that was the challenge we set out for ourselves. And it was, uh, yeah, tons of fun trying to accomplish it. I really enjoyed what, what, what you did with, before we kind of really knew what kind of film we were in, just introducing Audrey and Henry to the world. And every time something salacious comes along, you're kind of like, oh, hello, what, 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 what? who are these people? I thought they were just cooking breakfast. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, well, that's just it. They're normal people. If you were to you know, the, if you were to go out and find a Satanist in this world or, you know, someone doing this, they would probably appear like normal people. Look at, you know, the world is fascinating with serial killers right now. There's, I don't know how many uh, true serial killer stories there are on, you know, Netflix and other streamers. Um, cause it's interesting because these people are just normal. So what do these, what do these kidnapping, you know, Satanist dark arts couple, what do they do? in between kidnappings. Oh, they're going to make breakfast. They got to go to work. Uh, they're just normal people. They're not very good at Satanism. They're new to it. They came across this as a means to an end. Um, so it's not like they've committed their life to it. They're not, they're not great at, you know, translating the Latin or whatever other languages are in that book. They're just, uh, doing their best. <laughs> they're, they're driven by, by, you know, extreme desire, but, uh, they really, they're just fumbling through like anybody else. What's what you, you explained sort of how 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 it sort of exploded as an idea, and then so you, when you've got to that when you're batting forward that treatment back and forth, and then and Keith comes produces what is the first draft that takes you forward as a kind of a more rounded vision for the film. What's what's the process then between the pair of you in terms of then f- preparing that to shoot? You know, as your yeah, well we. Uh we just really go back and forth with notes. I'll give him some notes and I'll, you know, if there's a, if there's a plot hole somewhere that he didn't catch on the first draft, we'd be like, well, what about this character? You know, wh- what ended up with them? And then we have to come up with a reason for that. Uh, we, we found our location quite easily because uh, the, the house is mainly uh, actually Keith's house uh, that we shot in. So we sat in the space and we said, okay, so this ghost could come in through that door and then this is where they could chase them. And uh, so we really, I blocked out a bunch of the scenes during the writing process, which is great. Um, 
we yeah we started breaking down each character i think shortly after the first draft was written um i watched a movie called cardinals with sheila mccarthy as the lead um and i just said she she is our audrey she is phenomenal we also had to be wary of our budget um so we looked for canadian actors um because that helps within the canadian system and with with working with the union actra um so we knew we needed canadian actors uh sheila was one and she was phenomenal so a friend of a friend of a friend i was able to get the script to her she sent me an email back within two days. She read it. She loved it. She said, yeah, count me in. I, I would love to do this. The dream ticket. Um, the dream so, ticket, a two-day yeah, turnaround. It was, it, yeah, she was, she's just incredible. She's, uh, she's hungry for work. She loves, she loves the craft. Um, you know, she works on lots of big major shows and things, but she also likes doing these small indies because it lets her, uh, you know, flex different muscles. Um, so now we had Sheila attached. So we went back and said, all right, you know, how could we more adapt this to, um, to the Sheila that we know from, you know, from her films. Um, so yeah, just a lot of, a lot of conversations back and forth. What for you was, was the sort of big storytelling challenge for, for this? I mean, you said, you know, before you said, if we can pull this off, then we've got it. Like, so when you were unpacking that idea of pulling it off, what became the obstacles to overcome in storytelling Term. Uh, the biggest obstacle was loving kid, the kidnappers. You have to, um, you know, see the world through their eyes, understand what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was the challenge. If they did anything at one point, I think Henry, uh, you know, pulled a gun out of a drawer, uh, because Rory was getting too close. And then we decided, no, that's, that's not Henry. Henry wouldn't have a gun. Um, if um what else did we have to change and adapt just yeah things within the character if they were yeah too aggressive or did something and the the only reason for doing it was to be evil or weird um then we had to pull it out because these had to be normal people they had to be you know anybody's grandparents um that that went right down to the set design to the wardrobe um and the casting of course yeah because it's kind of it's i mean it doesn't i don't think it literally says this but it's it's kind of like when they're when they're sort of in in conversation with with the woman chained to the bed it's 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 along the lines of the classic look it's not personal this this isn't personal <laughs> and you never get the sense that it is you never like you, you don't feel like this is like the arch villains having their wicked way their, their means to an end is all that you only ever really feel like they're driven by their need for Jackson. Absolutely. So, and yeah, that's, uh, you know, even Ian is, uh, a very, you know, twisted character. Um, and you know, probably the, the closest to chaotic evil that we have within this film. Um, but even he, and, you know, portrayed brilliantly by the actor, Josh Crudis, um, he's just a socially awkward guy who's always looked for acceptance. He wants to fit in. He wants friends. That's what he found in this, you know, Satanism and the world hasn't treated him well. So he wants to get back at them. So, um, you know, even he, the, the worst of the bunch, I would say in this film, um, is, uh, something something created him um right the world and the his life around him created this uh this monster so um yeah we just wanted everybody to be real what was your um, what was your inspiration for the for the satanist club as it were or the church however however you called it we just we started looking into like real online groups of of satanists and they you know there there's not a lot of them they don't have 
an old castle they gather in. They don't have underground caves. Um, well, maybe they do in the UK. Castles are more readily available over there than they are here. But uh, they don't. They just go meet at the community center or they meet um, at someone's house. They, have a, uh, they go for coffee once a week. Um, and that's where their meetings are. So these people are just, you know, this is, this is where they found acceptance. I think, um, you know, I don't know how into spoilers you want to get, but not every member of the, uh, of the cult is there because they believe in it. (laughs) Um, so it was really just, yeah, part of that realism and the realism is funny in a way too, right? Like these people doing these dark, scary things they just they got to go to the community center and they're going to get hungry so you know uh um, yolanda's boyfriend's going to make the muffins he's going to try his best because he wants everyone there to have a good time after they're done hailing satan Hmm. no i liked i liked that a lot it was um there was that there was that recent documentary about about satanists sort of with that prank about the statue I think it's literally called Hail Satan. I think the documentary is. Yeah, they they moved. We watched that. That uh, there was a documentary on Netflix. I think is where that was. It came out. It came out sort of like six months after we wrote the first draft of the script. Um, so we checked that out. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Like people are going to anyone who's seen this is going to get our Satanists in the church because this is them. They move into the subdivision. They paint their yellow house black. Like that's that's what they are. So. Um, it just added a little bit more authenticity to, uh, to it the speaks that volumes, created. doesn't it? To to this the sort of this human condition to belong, of which obviously Ian's character is is the epitome of that because he's so lost. He's found mm-hmm. he's found himself there, but but the people who don't care about it so much but are glad to be part of it, it's almost like an extent for some of them. It's like an extension of a Motley Crue album, as much as it's an extension of you know, anything to do with the Dark Lord. Very much so. And it's, it's you know, frighteningly reflected in politics right now, particularly in the U.S., as we all watch. Um, it's, uh, you know, these people who are are fed the certain level of information and, you know, believe one thing. And it, uh, you know, depending where you get your news, whether it's on your social media, like everybody is just living more and more within a bubble where they only hear echoes of what they want to hear. And they're not going out to seek other other opinions, um, so that sort of you know feels like a bit, a bit of reflection of of where these characters all came from as well. Now you you mentioned uh, Josh Kudos's performance, and it is it is fantastic. And looking at his IMDb profile, he's a good looking fella, but you were uh, yeah he doesn't look like it in the film. He looks kind of a desperate man. So what what were you, what was you, what was you doing there with with the, with the look of him? And what what did you what work did you do with him or? So much of that was Josh. So he actually auditioned. He sent us uh, self tapes for two other characters, two smaller characters, and both of them were fantastic, but such polar opposites of each other. Um, he just he he could chameleon himself. I don't think that's the proper use of the term uh, into a role, and just totally unrecognizable. So we loved him. We loved his look. We said we got to see him read for Ian and see what he can bring to this. Um, so he did and he, uh, he, yeah, he just knocked it out of the park. I love his journey from, you know, the first time we meet him. Um, a lot of people online, actually some of the negative feedback we've got from the film was that they didn't realize it was him when he arrived at the house because he was such a meek, small, quiet individual when they first met him at the library, I guess some people missed him. Um, so like, who's this guy in, you know, whatever the end of act two. 
And we're like, no, you, you met him already. But uh, yeah, it's just the journey he went on. Um, and yeah, in terms of the look, uh, our, our makeup department and wardrobe sort of built him up to be what he was. Um, I think one, uh, one um, review said that he had the, uh, you know, the worst hair in cinematic history or something like that, which, <laughs> which offended him because he said, we didn't change my hair. That's just how I wear it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they gave him like, you know, dark circles under his eyes because he doesn't sleep. They made him, you know, nice and pale because he doesn't spend a lot of time out in the sun. Um, so they, they gave him that physicality and he brought, uh, he brought everything else from the, the meek and quiet to the rage filled Ian, uh, that, that finished off the film. Now, now you took, you obviously you talked about the challenges of, of, of creating these, these, these two grandparents and the performances mm-hmm. of Sheila McCarthy and Julian Richards are, are absolutely stellar. Um, so when, when you, when you first sort of, when you started sort of in production and you're, you're, you're getting them to perform as these characters. Mm-hmm. What, what did they bring to the, the central characters that you weren't expecting that you were kind of like, once it started happening, you're like, Oh my goodness, look at this. <laughs> uh, I think I had that reaction to every word out of both of their mouths. <laughs> every time they spoke, it was just like, wow, to, to be in the presence of that and watch, um, watch both of them perform was, uh, was an absolute pleasure. Uh, so yeah, they, um, I met with both of them separately before, uh, you know, they officially accepted the roles because they very much wanted to know, because, uh, when you heard the pitch at the beginning, this could come off as a very cheesy, ridiculous, uh, you know, ride. It's a, it's a silly concept, obviously. <laughs> um, but they wanted to know that this was based in reality, that, um, it was really more about their love for each other and their love for Jackson and that family dynamic. They wanted to know that that's what we were doing and we weren't just going to make them extreme evil over the top characters. Um, so once, uh, once they saw that we were all on the same page in terms of what these characters had to be, they spent time together. They spent their own time. I think they got together for a coffee. They, they had a few calls together um, and they just sort of developed this relationship you know what we've been married for you know 30 plus years so what would henry and audrey how would they behave um how would they live together what would their day-to-day life be like um and i know julian specifically has said he's taken from his own life a lot there is uh you know married for many years um so they just wanted to be this loving couple and that was the that was the base and then everything they did from there could spring from that um, you know, everything down to the, the little arguments they have They're you know, they get mad, but they never stay mad because they, they know each other, they know each other inside and out. And, uh, that was the, yeah, that's where they came from. And obviously there's snow on the ground, which is, which gives, which gives the, the whole thing a certain mood and a certain light as it were, but <clears throat> excuse me. And it's obviously something you'd be used to as a, as a, as a Canadian, um, so what was the conversation like with you and Sasha Morich about about the cinematography? You know, what were what what were you taking it where were you taking your influences from in terms of your conversations with Sasha about what you wanted to achieve about the look and feel of anything for Jackson? Yeah, well we wanted it to feel uh you know, the 
I'll go with the cliche. We wanted it to feel cinematic. Um, everyone wants to feel cinematic. Which particular strain of cinematic would you going for? <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted it. Uh, we wanted to feel bigger than it was. We had a very low budget to make this film, so we wanted to feel bigger than it was. That's why we tracked down Sasha because he's, um, you know, a very accomplished, uh, up and coming cinematographer who works as a camera operator on, you know, gigantic sets as well as DOPs, tons of, of phenomenal projects. Um, so we wanted, we went, uh, we shot on anamorphic lenses, um, on the Ari Alexa full frame mini. Um, and we wanted a, a bit of a saturated look, but mostly in the warm tones, we wanted uh, nice, you know, deep, rich greens, dark blues. Um, we painted all the sets, uh, you know, Sasha worked closely with our art department to come up with the, the color and tone throughout, uh, the only place was the doctor's office. We couldn't, we weren't allowed to paint that one. Um, so it remained a little bit brighter, but, uh, I think it still worked within the flow of the story. I was going to say, given what you've just, if that was the brief you were saying, and now I was thinking about the film, I felt, I felt like, cause the, the doctor's surgery is about the only real place we go to outside the home. And I felt like it, it it all seamlessly wove together as a look and feel. I didn't feel like there was any difference. Yes, I, I agree. It, it ended up working well. It just was, you know, the, the one step outside of the tone, but that's good because it's the one, you know, journey outside of the, uh, of that story um, of their world, I should say. Um, and then we wanted, um, what else? I just had a, a brilliant answer for you and it slipped out of my head again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these conversations happened a year ago now, so it's, it's hard to remember all the detail we talked about. Um, we wanted to keep the camera steady. We didn't want a ton of handheld, which is, uh, you know, very common these days when things get crazy, you just start shaking the camera around and, and we all feel the chaos that's going on, but we wanted to be able to see it. Um, so nice and steady. We shot on, uh, on a Ronin, a, a stabilizer a lot. We had dollies, jibs. Um, so keep that camera still. Uh, we didn't want it overly cutty. We wanted a nice, you know, wide master shots. We wanted to see the whole world. We wanted to keep shadows and corners um, open and available for people to search for, you know, the next scary thing that's going to come at us. Yeah, yeah, because you, 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 there's shots that, it, certainly within the house, there's angles and frames within frames that enable the camera to stay where it is and everything just come into picture as it were. Yeah. The house is fascinating. It was, it's not your typical, you know, Victorian haunted house. Um, but the angles and multiple staircases allowed for, you know, lots of shadows and corners and, and surprises. So it was uh, it was a great spot to shoot. Um, so that, you know, dictated a lot of the look of the film as well. Now, obviously look and feel, we've got the performances, we've got the great story, but horror is often nothing without, without its sort of overlaying score, which is adds to the sound design. So what was what was your conversations like with John McCarthy then about about what you were going to do with how it should sound in terms of the score? John was he's he's a very accomplished composer. He's actually Sheila McCarthy's brother, um, which is how he got onto the project. Sheila liked the script enough that she sent it off to him and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this with me? Um, and he came on board and yeah, just brought so much knowledge, you know, a lot more than I have about music. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, we, uh, I don't, I'm not great at talking about music. So I would, uh, I'm sure irritated him several times th during our conversations. What would, out of interest then, what would be a, what would in, with his experience and maybe you had conceding your inexperience, what was maybe a lesson you learned from him about how effective music can be for what you want to achieve 
visually. He gave us a lot of options, which was great. He gave us, you know, for some of the scares, he gave us a big loud hit and then he gave us an option without, and he would tell us his preference, but he said, if you want it, you know, you can put that in the mix, but, uh, but you don't have to use it. Um, uh, we use a lot of, oh, now I'm going to forget what they're called. Shepherd tones, um, for that constant building of, of tension. Um, it's when a, uh, a scale goes up and then it fades out before it finishes getting to the top and it fades in from the bottom again. So it feels like it's this constant rising. No, there's definitely a presence to the, to the score that kind of gets, you know, I was there with the headphones on listening, watching it and it gets into you. Very much so. Yeah. And he, he started making things for us um, before we, I think before we even rolled cameras, he started giving us some, some short tracks of things he was putting together and playing with different instruments. Um, I think we went back and forth with instruments a few times. Keith, the writer is a musician, so he knew a little bit better than I, uh, how to speak the language. Um, but yeah, I would just have to listen to the things he sent me. I would send him samples from other films. I would you know look up on YouTube or whatever and say, you know, I really like this, but I don't like that portion. Uh, can you explain to me why I don't like that? And he said, oh, you know, the tempo changes or it changes keys or, you know, this is why that feels different than the first half. And, and so he would educate me that way. Um, and then, uh, he was very patient with, with me just saying, I don't like this. Tell me why. And he would explain it and then go back and change it. And <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I guess, I guess there is, there's, cause when you're presenting a score, there's, there's, there's a functionality of what it's meant to do to support the film. Then, then they the can't help but be subject when it when it's more melodic. They can't help but be the subjective idea of taste that can get in the way as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a very logical thinker, and I've been a uh, you know I've been a camera nerd my whole life. I started as a cinematographer, so that's always something I would look at something and say, why why does this image look different? And I would break it apart and find out you know this is this is the lighting, this is the gels, this is the lens. Um, and so I love tearing it apart and figuring it out, but uh, I'm just, I don't have, you know, that musical mind. So I would look at it and I would, I would always want to know why this track was making me feel this way. And this one wasn't. So um, John very patiently and kindly explained it all to me and uh, allowed me to, you know, technically I made the final decisions, but uh, none of them would have been good without his guidance. So. No, it's fantastic to hear that, that kind of, that kind of collaboration to what is the best solution, not, what is my preferred solution is often a better route to go. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, you've, you've got to be willing to collaborate because film is such a collaborative art form. So, um, you know, dictating every department, I, I would never be arrogant enough to think I know best in every single department when, uh, when there's so many people who have, you know, committed their life to this one thing. Um, so you've got to, uh, you got to be willing to listen and, uh, get educated on every decision you make. Now, uh, you mentioned about how many spoilers we're going to do. So we've been talking for about 30 minutes now. So for the listener's benefit, I'm going to say we are, we are now going to move into some territory that may be spoilers. There won't be major ones, but it's just more decisions you took and what I liked and what I liked about it as a horror film fan. In, in particular, the one thing I've been dying to talk about since I've seen the film and since we've been having this conversation is your commitment to the idea of there being a supernatural thing like because it's very easy with the with the satanist group and the bumbling grandparents to go oh it never happened they were just daft you know but actually you committed to the idea that the thing they've stumbled on 
is actually darkly powerful and they're going to bring forth something that nobody should try and bring forth. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's difficult to marry that to a natural, you know, average, normal looking world um, because we did. We wanted to make it believable. Um, so the way we did that was we made, you know, the characters were just as surprised as the audience when in that flashback, when Audrey brings the crow back to life, um, both of them have to look at it and just be shocked and surprised. And they learn it's real along with the audience, like, holy smokes, this is actually something. Um, so that was the, that was the goal there is to, you, you always got to wink to the audience. You have to let them know that you know that this is a long shot, <laughs> right? It's, uh, you know, we, we get it. This is not, this isn't based in reality, but look, they're surprised. You're surprised. So just come along with us on this journey. And um, hopefully you, you, you buy in along with these, uh, with these characters who just learned the same thing you did. And because you did that, that's what I think enabled you to do what you did with Ian's, with the character of Ian is that he gets to be the one that's not surprised at all. In fact, he knows all the all the junctions in the road they're taking that they can get it wrong, never mind what the final outcome is. Yes, be. yes, that's true. Now, this uh, it's, it's a very subtle nuance, but I'll let you in on it. Even Ian gets it wrong. Um, so when he summons Vanth at the end, um, we're in big spoilers here, our, uh, our eternally pregnant demon, he was actually going after, he was trying to summon a different demon, but he got it wrong too. He got the translations wrong. So he, he talks a good game, but he's still stumbling through this like everybody else. He's never actually, you know, brought a crow to life like Audrey did. It says this book is what has the power, which is why when he actually got his hands on it, it was such an incredible thing for him. Uh, and he was so excited, but he wanted to use that book to do his own deed. He, he didn't care about Jackson or what their goals were. He wanted to, now that this book exists and he had his hands on it, he wanted to use what they had set up for his own benefit. And he wanted to bring back a, a demon, but because Ian is a bit of a bit of an incel, um, his weakness is the female. So, you know, he was terrified of Becker. He was more uncomfortable around Audrey. And then when he accidentally summons the wrong demon, our eternally pregnant female Vanth, that uh, she is the one who who essentially brings him down. I'm glad I announced spoilers before you yes. started. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but but I really appreciated that that idea of because because in my in my personal belief system, I, I I'm firmly atheist. If, if, if agnostic at best, you know, in terms of the the kind of good religions, in terms, if you want to put it, frame it that way, the idea of the the gods and the deities that are meant to present hope and inspiration to our lives. But I've always thought of like you know the dark side as being sort of the bad guys of of, of the deity world, and that idea of playing with that scares me, no matter how little I think I believe in it. And I like the idea that people who wouldn't, like you say, wouldn't have previous experience of it would be summoning for something that, you, like I said before, like you wouldn't want to. And I like that. I like the notion of I'm a Satanist. Satan's my my guy. But Satan is, by definition, a bastard, a conniving liar, a, you know, he's duplicitous in everything he does. Why would you, what hope would you have other than being a servant, which I think maybe, I mean, I'm not sure this is, I'm putting words in your mouth now, but in me watching it, it's like, it's like the way that 
you know, the people that stormed Capitol Hill what, what basically want a fascist leader to bow down before because they can't stand the idea that we all just think for ourselves and we share in the, you know, they share in the world. Yeah, I think uh, I think for Ian Ian's case, he's just so rejected that he doesn't really care. Yeah, maybe he wants to be a servant. Maybe he just wants to take revenge on this world that's treated him so badly. Um, and, you know, maybe he thinks if it changes this way because he's committed his life to, you know, to the demons as opposed to the deities, um, then uh, maybe he will get maybe his life will get better. I don't know if it is um, fully selfish or if it's just vengeance. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, or if you just playing with the book, if you walk into Capitol Hill and just grab a podium and pose for a picture, <laughs> you know, you don't know why you're doing it. You're just doing it. <laughs> you didn't know what revolution looked like until you yeah, were in one. Yeah, exactly. I, I recently interviewed Neil Marshall about his new film, The Reckoning, and... Uh, in that he he does a he has a very similar kind of finale in the sense of the the evil forces that we think exist become something that becomes the kind of the way the film has its finale, and we talked about the design of the creature, <clears throat> and I learned from him that for VFX special effects people, the idea of you know getting your hands on creating a demon is like you know that's like the holy the holy grail for want of a better. A better expression of VFX. Uh, you know, you get your chance to do your devil. You know, you're on screen. So, what was your conversations like with the the people you collaborated with in terms of creating the the evil thing that we see? That was headed up by Carly Morse, um, and she is an incredible practical effects artist, um, makeup as well. I, I had worked with her in the past, um, and so she uh, she did us a favor and came out, and she just she loved the script. She loved being able to create this you know wide variety of ghosts and demons. Um, so she brought so many creative ideas to the table. Uh, we found old, you know, you're always going to go look to the goats and the serpents and everything. Your, your classic, uh, you know, demon, um, mood board, if you will. <laughs> and so, so yeah, we pulled up lots of images of, you know, old paintings and cave drawings and we showed her, you know, this is, this is Vanth, the, the demon. Um, I, I forget even the, um, the, I don't, it's not even from a religion. It's from a, um, I'm at a loss for the word right now, but um, they're not, they're not from Christianity or anything like that. They're from a wide variety of, of different um, legends. So there's just a sort of outlying paganist belief. It's not, it's not sort of as a, as a, it's not an opposition to God. It just right, yeah, it's, it's as, you know, it's, it's not from, you know, Greek mythology, but it might as well be. It's from a totally different, um, you know, time. It's from a different uh, civilization. That's the big word that was so, <laughs> it was escaping me. It's from a different <laughs> civilization. Uh, and uh, oh, wow. we just, we combine them all together. So the, what we were looking for was, this is a bit of a tangent here. Uh, we didn't want to say, you know, this is Christianity. So these are the demons. They are all in the Bible. It explains everything. If you read it, um, we just say that in the, the afterlife, these things exist. Uh, the bird head guy in the cloak, he exists. And every time he has shown up throughout history, that civilization caught a glimpse of him, saw something he did, and they created their own story around him. Uh, now, he hasn't changed whether or not he was seen by the Greeks or the Christians, but he has always existed. So that's 
So between him and Vanth, we just say they all exist. And this is what they were called by that civilization. But that changes depending who sees them and, and what they've, they've done to you or for you. Um, so yeah, we, that was kind of nice because we didn't have any, um, there were no rules confining us to this is what they have to look like. You know, the angels have to have a halo. Uh, none of those rules applied because we were just totally free to go and look at any art throughout history. So that's what we did. And we sent it all to Carly and, uh, and she started drawing, um, and sent us all these images and, you know, very much the same way we worked with, uh, with our composer, we just said, you know, look, we, we love this. We love the, the horns coming out of her eyes. Um, what can we do like on her back? We need some texture on the skin. It was Carly's idea to make her eternally pregnant, which was amazing. Um, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we just, uh, same thing, a lot of back and forth, uh, you know, a lot of emails and drawings and sketches and, and source material and, um, yeah, then she started sculpting and showed us it on like a headpiece. We, we didn't have the time or money to do a, a test day to build our demons. So the day we were filming her is when we met her, uh, which was awesome. Oh, wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't recommend it. It's very stressful. It's like, I don't know what she's going to look like, but uh, it definitely worked out. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's where they, that came from. And then our, our flossing ghost, same thing. Carly got together with Marianne, the actress. Um, took a form of her mouth and built these teeth. She had like, um, I think she had one that was magnetic, one where the teeth were glued in, one where the teeth were permanent. We had three different molds for the mouth that showed um, the, you know, the empty gums, gums with teeth in them. Um, and then she just flossed the heck out of them. <laughs> Talking about rule, obviously freeing yourself up from rules by just taking bits that you liked in terms of visuals. But within your, within your film, obviously you've got provenance that you've got to you've got to sort of establish within your own heads if nobody else is. And 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 obviously one of the consequences of what's going on is that the house itself becomes like a like a homogeneously sealed environment of the living dead or living spirits of the dead or whatever however you want to describe it. How how did you decipher your own rules of the game in that Yeah, sense? so our rules were that once um, Sirgat, the, the bird-headed demon, once Sirgat arrived, the gates were open. So Sirgat is the, the gatekeeper demon. So he had keys hanging from his lantern. So now the gate is open and all these souls can actively pass in and out of this area that Sirgat has opened up the, the portal, if you will. Um, so they can arrive and they know that this, um, now that the gate is open, they can come and try to take over a body and this could be their ticket back to life because they are these tortured souls lost in this sort of purgatory type state. Um, so they're not working together. They don't care about each other. They don't not even necessarily aware of each other, but they all have the same goal, which is to get in and take over a body so they can have a chance uh, at life again. Um, now, when somebody shows up that is going to uh, help this along, like Henry and Audrey, they are they're not going to hurt them um necessarily but they they want they want to get in but as long as henry and audrey are doing this and they still have the mindset of we want to bring our grandson back then they are helping the cause of these ghosts and demons uh when ian arrives he is there to 
move this forward. So he's helping them. But when Detective Bellows arrives or when Rory is there snooping around too much, they're going to get in the way. They might tell somebody, they might get this the people out of this house, they might free Becker. That's not in the interest of our ghosts and demons. So they have to put a stop to that. Those were our rules. No, I think they're solid because it's like it's a good, it makes a lot of sense because in a way it plays to the idea that that, that supernatural forces for good or for bad rely a lot on free will and what we decide to do. And obviously if what we decide to do is in is in their bidding, then that supports the belief in them. Absolutely, yeah. I'm currently watching American Gods and it's it's amazing just thinking of that idea of if we don't believe in them enough, they'll vanish. Yes. So <clears throat> it would make sense the rules would be based on who wants us most, mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. not on how much how scary can we be and how scared can people be of us because that in the end becomes reductive. But obviously there are antagonistic forces, even for the spirits of hell. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Which I can't believe is not, it's not a phrase I expected to say today, but I feel like it makes sense in this conversation. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, um, let's remind people then. So anything for Jackson is available to watch on Shudder. Um, Congratulations with anything for Jackson. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was uh, Everything that I would want from a horror film. That's oh, well, I very much appreciate that. And thanks for uh, thanks for all the insightful questions. This is a lot of fun. Hello, my name is Audrey, and this is my husband Henry. We don't want to hurt you or your baby. We feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. Dr. Walt, huh? Morning. Here to clean your drive. No, no, everything's okay. Thank you so much for the book. Hail Satan. No one has more time than a grieving family. We can do this. He's coming back to us. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 